Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Putin's troops may be losing one battle, but are they winning the war? The lead starts right now. NATO and the Biden administration point to small victories for Ukraine amidst blunders by Russia. But Putin continues to pulverize South and East Ukraine. So are we headed to some sort of stalemate, ending up with two different countries, an occupied Ukraine and a free Ukraine? Plus, Biden goes big, announcing plans to release a record one million barrels of oil a day from the U.S. Reserve. But Might that be just a drop in the bucket for the average consumer? And a key member of Trump's inner circle front and center, Jared Kushner, taking questions from the January 6th committee today. What we're learning about his testimony. That's ahead. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. And we start today with breaking news in our world lead. New signs that Russia is in this for the long haul as Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine enters its sixth week. Today, the Russian leader authorized the military to draft approximately 135,000 additional Russian citizens. And NATO Secretary General says, quote, we can expect additional offensive actions bringing even more suffering, unquote, for the Ukrainian people. On the ground, a clear shift by the Russian military now redirecting forces to the east, to the Donbass region, where Ukrainian officials are reporting heavy shelling. There was also an intense bombardment in the eastern Kharkiv region, which a Ukrainian military official says has prevented the opening of evacuation corridors there for citizens to escape with their lives. And despite Kremlin claims of de-escalation, Russian forces are continuing to strike the capital city of Kyiv, according to a senior Pentagon official today. Just moments ago, Ukraine's defense minister announced in a tweet that at least 148 children, 148 have been killed in Ukraine by Putin's army since the start of the invasion five weeks ago. Still, the West has doubts about Russia's ability to achieve its ultimate success. New intelligence from the UK says that morale among Russian soldiers is so low, some troops are apparently refusing to carry out orders. President Biden earlier today said Putin is becoming increasingly isolated, but Biden says he is skeptical Putin will withdraw all of his forces from around Kyiv. Let's go straight to CNN's chief international anchor, Christian Amapour, who's live for us in Kiev. And Christian, even though Russia's efforts to take over Kiev in a short period of time, that failed, parts of the capital where you are, as you tell us, are still totally yeah. destroyed. And you visited a farming village about a mile from the front line. Tell us what you saw. Well, Jake, I did. And the thing also is that we had some incoming missiles into this city, into the heart of this city this afternoon. So, you know, while, yes, the the Pentagon and others believe that troops are withdrawing from this region to Belarus to refit, resupply and then be redeployed somewhere, we were also told to expect continued air power and potential missiles. And that is certainly what we saw in the heart of this city. Earlier today, I went to the outskirts of Kyiv, where it's a 
pretty much a farming village. And the Ukrainians very early in the war showed us how they had stopped a major armored column of the Russians from coming from there right here to the center. The first thing you notice approaching the front northeast of Kyiv are the lines of villagers waiting for humanitarian handouts. They receive a bag of bread and basics to get them through these difficult days. The first week of the war, a shell hit us near the greenhouse. We barely survived, says this woman. We had help from strangers around us. They gave us bread and canned food. We wouldn't have managed otherwise. No one here knows when this war will end or whether Russia still has designs on Kyiv. The front line is about a mile away. For now, an uneasy calm prevails ever since the Ukrainian defenders stopped the Russian advance here. It was February 28th, they say, day four of the war. They want to show us how they did it, but first we have to clamber over the bridge they downed to see the armored column they managed to take out. The riverbank is littered with their skeletons, and this was a turkey shoot. Russian armored vehicles and tanks had come off the road to avoid the anti-tank mines, only to find themselves unable to cross the bridge and unable to reverse in time. Ukrainian forces tell us none of the soldiers inside survived. A little further up the road, two tanks have been virtually smelted, blasted almost to smithereens. 40-year-old Yevgeny, a veteran fighter, proudly tells us this was his handiwork. We all here have one role, to keep the enemy off our land, he says. First thing they did after seeing the village, they started to shell houses, just like that. They didn't see us. They didn't know we were here. So they just started to work on houses. And so I took the tank in my sights and I fired a rocket. And goodbye to him. The destroyed vehicles are stamped with an O. The Ukrainian officers here tell us this identifies them as Russian units that entered from Belarus to the north. Oleg is the officer who commanded this operation. As for now, looking at previous fighting we've had, I can tell you that we are trained better, he tells me. We have stronger morale and spirit because we're at home. They are afraid, but they go because they're made to. He's been battle-hardened ever since the first Russian invasion in 2014. He says his side has enough weapons, ammunition and determination to win. I can tell you I'm almost sure the Russians are regrouping and not retreating, he says. Besides, we are preparing ourselves to go forward. We're not preparing just to defend here. U.S. and British intelligence say Putin seems to have, quote, massively misjudged this situation and clearly overestimated the abilities of his military to secure a rapid victory. And this old lady tells us, I have seen one war and here we go again. I wish Putin would go away. The people of this land remain stalwart and the soldiers remain dug in, hoping they can continue to withstand whatever Putin has in store for them next. And so, of course, you know, who knows what Putin has in store? Everybody's trying to guess his next move. As you mentioned, could it be a division of the country? Could it be a stalemate, a continued war of attrition? One of the very, very concerning things, the Polish prime minister told me that even despite all these sanctions, which eventually will bite, the ruble in Russia is doing pretty well. And they're concerned that Putin's not yet feeling enough pain in order to stop this. All right, so CNN's Christiana Mapor in Kiev, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Appreciate that report. As the war in Ukraine continues to rage on, 
President Biden is now invoking wartime powers to help Americans paying for near-record gas prices here in the U.S. CNN's MJ Lee is live for us at the White House. And MJ, today Biden said one million barrels of oil will be released from U.S. reserves every day for the next six months. Explain what the intention is of that. Yeah, Jake, you do the math there, 1 million barrels of oil a day for about six months. That amounts to some 180 million barrels of oil that the U.S. is planning to release. Uh, Not the first time that the U.S. has taken this kind of action. Remember, earlier this month, U.S. and its allies announcing the release of some 60 million barrels of oil. Last November, 50 million barrels of oil. And the hope right now is that those kinds of actions, in addition to taking measures to try to boost oil production here in the United States, can try to eventually uh, drive prices down. But interestingly and not surprisingly, U.S. administration officials are being uh, very wary when they're asked questions about how quickly uh, this might help drive prices down. There's a real recognition that it is very, very challenging to get prices down. Uh, The former releases of the oil that I mentioned, those did not really have an impact on getting the oil prices down as consumers are really feeling it at the gas pump. Jake. And MJ, you also asked President Biden about whether Putin is being misinformed by his advisors, as a U.S. official told CNN yesterday. Uh, What did he have to say to that? I did. I just asked the president how badly he believes Vladimir Putin is being misinformed by his advisors. And this was the first time that the president uh, addressed this issue ever since yesterday when U.S. officials declassified information showing that Vladimir Putin is getting bad information about how badly his uh, army is doing, his military is doing, and how badly the sanctions are affecting his economy. This is what the president told me. That's an open question. Uh, There's a lot of speculation, Uh, but uh, he seems to be, I'm not saying this with a certainty, he seems to be self-isolating, and there's some indication that he has um, fired or put under house arrest some of his advisors. So the clear suggestion there being that some of Putin's advisors may be being punished. And one more question that the president took from a reporter uh, was about Russia's claims that they are going to be pulling forces out of Kyiv. He said there is no clear evidence that he is pulling all forces out of Kyiv. He also said that there is evidence to suggest that he is beefing up military presence in the Donbass region. So everybody from the president on down showing real skepticism about some of these new Russian claims. Jake. Yeah. MJ Lee at the White House. Thanks so much. Here to discuss Republican Congressman Mike Turner of Ohio. He's the ranking Republican on the House Intelligence Committee. He also serves on the Armed Services Committee. Uh, Congressman, good to see you as always. The, uh, President Thank Biden you. is calling on Congress to impose fees on oil companies if they do not use these leases on federal lands uh, that they have and increase domestic oil production in the U.S. We all want domestic oil production uh, increased to solve this problem, or, or so I hear from Capitol Hill. Uh, do you support this measure? Well, I, I think, you know, the, the president, first of all, he's not made a, a proposal that's here for us to look at. But I can tell you this, is that the president at least is going in the right direction of not just looking to release uh, oil from our strategic reserves, which is there for emergencies. He's looking to raise the, the production domestically. That's where we need to look. We need to make certain that we have energy, uh, uh, you know, obviously uh, produced here that can give us the independence uh, that can also lower the price. Um, let's talk about him, uh, his plan to, re- to release oil from the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserves. D- do you think uh, this will help uh, gas prices, at least uh, in the near term? 
Well, nothing will, you know, releasing oil now won't, re re won't reduce it in the near term, obviously, because it has to be produced into gasoline and make it onto the market. And it's going to be released at a time as to what the, the price of, of oil is at that time. I, I think that this is a very dangerous precedent to say that, that the president's going to just start uh, releasing from the strategic oil preserve, reserve at every time that he's concerned about how his energy prices, his energy policies are affecting prices. I think what he needs to do is to change his policies. And his policies need to be you know, focusing on domestic energy production. And he does appear as if he's going in that direction ultimately. So let me just circle back on the question about domestic oil production, because it's one of the things I hear from Republican members of Congress all the time, the need to increase uh, domestic oil production. One of the things the White House says is there are, there are so many uh, opportunities uh, for petroleum companies to, to do it with these, fee, uh, with these um, leases they have on federal land and they're not using it. Uh, what's the way to get them to use it? If not, I, I recognize, I hear you when you say he hasn't actually proposed a, 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 the actual fee, the actual legislation. But as a theoretical matter, uh, do you think these oil companies should be fined if they don't use these leases? No, I, you know, Jake, from the very beginning, this president said, and even on the campaign trail said, that he's basically going to go at war with the, the energy companies, the oil pr production uh, that's here with his Green uh, New Deal-esque uh, proposals. That, of course, chills the market. And if you're not continuing to provide uh, leases and land that's available for energy production, obviously the land that is there for energy production isn't going to be put into production as quickly as possible because you don't have this, this uh, uh, you know, availability of future production. He, he needs to, to change his policies. He needs to say that you know, we're for energy production. It goes toward our, uh, you know, <clears throat> fueling our economy. And obviously it over, lowers price, which affects the average consumer and certainly American families. Yesterday I spoke with one of your uh, Republican <laughs> colleagues, Ukrainian-born Congress, Ukrainian Congresswoman Victoria Sparts uh, from Indiana. Take a listen to part of what she had to say to me. We also gave it almost seven billion of humanitarian aid, and we need to have some oversight. What's happening with that, and where really it's going? Because it's not on the ground. I saw it with my own eyes, and I hear from people over there. And we just had parliamentarian from Ukraine coming yesterday, and they saw there is no, they told us no presence of major organization on the ground. So we need to look into that because it's not implemented properly, and people are suffering. A lot of people are dying, and will continue dying. So in that conversation, she's talking about uh, U.S. providing supplies to Ukraine. And, and obviously the logistics are, are difficult. But what exactly is the disconnect here? Because the Biden administration is promising, Congress is passing into law hundreds of millions of dollars of support uh, for Ukraine. Why aren't they getting what they need as quickly as they, as they need it? Well, Jake, just yesterday, the White House gave a classified briefing to members of Congress. And just as you heard from Victoria, it, it truly is amazing the connection that Ukrainian members of parliament have with members of Congress. We're getting uh, direct information. Many of, of the presenters yesterday in the classified briefing heard directly from lawmakers who are hearing from parliamentarians on the ground in Ukraine of the lack of, of supplies, both humanitarian and lethal aid that's getting through. But you have to understand, Jake, obviously there's a war going on in Ukraine. That makes logistics incredibly difficult. Uh, you know, there were tremendous calls uh, for the president to send in weapons and arms uh, before this conflict began. So he's, you know, he's playing catch up uh, in logistics now that are very, very difficult uh, as you look to an actual conflict that's happening on the ground. The head of the British intelligence agency says some Russian soldiers are becoming demoralized. Take a listen. We've seen Russian soldiers 
short of weapons and morale, refusing to carry out orders, sabotaging their own equipment, and even accidentally shooting down their own aircraft. What do you make of this assessment from the British, and and how widespread is this, do you think? Well, you know, I don't think it's incredibly widespread. I think the Ukrainians themselves are doing more damage to the Russian military than the Russian military is doing to itself. But what we do see is difficulty that the Russians are also having with logistics. They didn't plan for this war to continue. They didn't plan for the level of resistance that you have from the Ukrainians. And so what you have is the Russians trying to provide supplies uh, to their own troops that that are having very difficult uh, times in getting it there. It does sound something like a mixed message that we're getting from the West on the state of the Russian military. Uh, On the one hand, NATO officials are saying Russian troops are bulking up, preparing for more attacks. On the other hand, we're also hearing that the the Russian military is is more fragile than expected, starting to defy orders. uh, It it might be difficult for Americans to understand the status right now of what's going on with the Russian military. Well, I can tell you the impression yesterday from the classified briefing that we got is that, that the administration understands that this is going to take, that this, is, this conflict is going to go on for some time. Um, and because of that, we're going to continue to try to get weapons in the hands uh, of the Ukrainians. But the Russians did not plan or did expect this conflict to go this long. They thought that they were going to be received warmly. Obviously, they're not. They're being received by a very aggressive and very effective Ukrainian military armed with American weapons. All right, Congressman Mike Turner, ranking Republican on the House Intelligence Committee. Thank you so much for your time, as always, sir. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up, they escaped war, then stayed close to help the foreigners who do not call Ukraine home, yet feel compelled to help Ukrainian refugees. Plus, another concern for the West now, North Korea, the underground activity that has U.S. intelligence on alert. Stay with us. Continuing with our world lead now, among the now more than 4 million refugees from the brutal Russian invasion of Ukraine are some people who just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Students from other countries, for example, whose presence in Ukraine have nothing to do with Vladimir Putin's dreams of restoring the former Soviet empire. They had to flee, but not all of them went to their home country. CNN's Matt Rivers, who's in Hungary along the Ukrainian border, met with some who are helping other refugees because, as one said, it feels like they are a part of my family. In the play area of a temporary refugee shelter in Zahun, Hungary, kids sketch out their recent traumas on paper. Burning tanks drawn in crayon. Deadly battles fill out the chalkboard. Just outside that tent, Anmal Gupta can't erase their pain, but he can get one of those kids a stuffed animal and a smile in the process. When someone says, I'm scared, what do you say to them? Then we tell them what's going to happen next and everything will be okay, so you don't have to worry. And then I start joking with them, so a little bit there. You're good at that. Yes, (laughs) yes, that that I know. A smile, he says, goes a long way. Anmol is a volunteer, having spent the last month just across the Ukraine border, helping weary Ukrainians navigate the first few steps of new lives as refugees in Hungary. The native of northern India is fluent in Russian, a skill honed over his years studying for a medical degree in the city of Kharkiv, Ukraine. He was living there when the bombs first started falling. 
His apartment was destroyed, his motorcycle hit by bullets and shrapnel, and his nights spent in bomb shelters. He fled to Hungary, but still, he wanted to help. As a foreigner, he says, he lost very little, while his friends, Ukrainians, have lost everything. Is that part of the motivation that you have for, for being here? Yes, it can be. It can be, because I have been with them for nine years, and it feels like they are also my family. And he's not the only foreigner once living in Ukraine that still wants to help. Behind Kiosk Restaurant's fancy dining room in Budapest works a man who just two weeks ago was fleeing from explosions. Even Ezredo works in the kitchen, but in early March, he was in Kharkiv. He fled when the Russians attacked. So, Were you scared? Yeah, I was so scared, so scared, because all the bombing stuff, see, it's also shaking our building. He was studying there for a degree in business administration and wants to go back. But for now, he and his colleagues spend a part of their day cooking free meals for refugees. At least I'm helping so that they are going to give some people food, you know, some people that doesn't have anything to eat. Back at the border, hundreds of refugees are headed in Budapest's direction. Anmol picks up some tickets, hands them out, then picks up some bags and walks people to the train. He has done this every single day for a month now. So from us, a question. How long do you think you're going to stay here? As long as needed. As long as needed. And when will that be? No idea. That's the thing. I have no idea. But I believe that there will be some point when people will stop coming. But that time hasn't yet come. And so he keeps helping amidst a crowd of people who need it. It's right where he wants to be. You know, Jake, I asked Amal how his family feels about the fact that he's still here and not back in India. And he said that first they weren't thrilled, but now they're proud of him. And you know, frankly, in my opinion, they should be because we've seen a lot of traumatized people come across that border in the last few days. And his ability, at least temporarily, to put a smile on some people's faces just because he's an upbeat, you know, that kind of guy. It's really valuable in times like these. All right. Matt Rivers, thank you so much for that report. We're learning about an expanded investigation into the January 6th insurrection. The new questions about that rally before rioters stormed the Capitol, plus the new subpoenas recently issued. That's next. There is a flurry of activity in the January 6th investigations, including the House Select Committee talking with Donald Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Right now, let's get right to CNN's Ryan Nobles on Capitol Hill. And Ryan, you just got an update about Kushner's testimony. Tell us. Yeah, that's right, Jake. Uh, Jared Kushner, of course, the son-in-law of the former uh, President Donald Trump, uh, still interviewing with the January 6th Select Committee, meaning this has been a lengthy deposition about what he knows about the events leading up to January 6th. Kushner began this virtual chat with the committee this morning. Uh, and it, it seems that the committee is very interested in what Kushner may know about the events leading up to January 6th. You'll remember uh, that he was out of the country at that time, was actually flying back from overseas, so was not a part of the conversations that happened in the White House or in the Oval Office on that day. But it also shows that the committee has an interest that goes much beyond just the day itself, uh, the events leading up to it, the attempts to overturn the election, and the different conspiracies connected to that. So that could be some of the questions 
that the committee uh, is asking Kushner today. And it's also worth pointing out that the committee is also very interested in speaking to his wife, Ivanka Trump. They asked her to voluntarily appear before the committee. They're still negotiating with her in terms of her appearance. But it seems, at least today, they're uh, getting a lot of information out of Jared Kushner, given the lengthy amount of time he has been in front of the committee, Jake. And Ryan, we're, we're also significantly learning that the federal criminal investigation into the January 6th insurrection is expanding. Tell us more. Yeah, and it's a significant expansion, Jake. Up until this point, Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice have really trained their focus on the actual people that stormed the Capitol on that day and were causing all the violence. And that has led to some criticism in some circles, saying that they're not the only ones responsible for what happened here on January 6th. But we've been learning through a, a number of subpoenas that have been issued, some of the questions that have been asked, that that probe appears to be expanding beyond just those individuals and the individuals that organized these rallies, that helped to fund these rallies, that brought everyone to the Capitol that day, and also kind of fomented the anger that led to the insurrection on that day. At this point, at least from what we've learned, it appears that these subpoenas seem to be more of a fact-finding mission. These aren't necessarily targets of the Justice Department, or there's no specific indication that indictments are forthcoming. But Merrick Garland said from the beginning that he would go as far as this investigation would lead them. This is the first sign that we've seen that they are taking it to the next step. And he has said in the past that they will continue to do so until the investigation concludes. Jake. Ryan Nobles on Capitol Hill for us. Thank you so much. Coming up next, a closer look at the record amount of oil that President Biden wants released from U.S. reserves. Can one million barrels a day for three months really ease the price we pay at the pump? We'll gauge the possibility. That's next. In our money lead now, that unprecedented announcement to help ease gas prices. President Biden says one million barrels of oil will be released from the U.S. oil reserves every day for the next six months. That would help fuel the U.S. oil supply into September, but will that put a dent in the near record high prices we're paying now? $4.22 a gallon, according to AAA's national average today. Let's bring in CNN's Richard Quest. Uh, Richard, Biden did try something like this before. Back in November, he had 50 million barrels of oil released, 30 million earlier this month. Now it's 1 million barrels a day for six months. Comes out to roughly 180 million barrels. People are now back to work in the U.S. They're traveling for spring break. The busy summer travel season's coming up. One million barrels a day sounds good, but can it really help? Well, amongst the 20, 22 million a day that's consumed, it sort of puts it into perspective. Yes, it takes the pressure off, Jake. It's not going to dramatically reduce the price by 15, 20 percent. You're not going to see that sort of movement over the medium term, but you might see five or 10 cents. And more importantly, it is an extremely significant symbol that the government, the US government, is prepared to take action and keep the lid on the price as best it can. So both symbolism and practicalities, yes, releasing this vast amount by a presidential emergency decree, which is only the third time, fourth time that it's been done, three previous occasions, is important. But the president was right. This is a bridge. It is not an answer in its own right. So anybody expecting to see dramatic falls will be disappointed. And bear in mind, you could actually see the price go back up again as the news changes and the situation gets worse with oil and gas because of Putin.
And, and Richard, uh, OPEC today said that they're not coming to the rescue. They kept their modest <clears throat> production schedule as it is. Can Biden's announcement today put pressure on big oil companies to step up and produce more? Yes. Oh, look, the message is clear from the U.S. and others to the Saudis, to the Qataris, to all the major oil producing companies. You have to do more. But they keep saying because they have this weird construct of OPEC plus two, which includes Russia. They say, no, hang on. The price is fundamentally in balance because of supply and demand. It's this geopolitical war business that's raised it above that. It's a nonsense. The reality is the price is the price. And the U.S has been putting, uh, look, only last week I was in the region, I was in Dubai hearing from various people the pressure that's being put on to squeeze the UAE and the Saudis to do more. So far they haven't. But here in Europe, Jake, there's also problems. Today President Putin threatened to turn off the gas taps to Europe if they don't pay in rubles. Now the Europeans say, we ain't doing that. Because if we do that, we're breaking our own sanctions. So all in all, oil is the fighting ground because it's the political pressure. It heats the homes. It drives the cars. It flies the planes. And Putin knows he's got us where he wants us at the moment. And Richard, on top of all this, uh, a new report from the Department of Commerce here in the U.S. shows that inflation in the U.S. hit a 40-year high in February, the singest and that we should note, that is the single biggest issue uh, for 55% of Americans, according to a brand new Kaiser poll. Uh, that's almost 40 points ahead of feelings about Russia's invasion or climate change, COVID, crime. Um, so obviously this is, A, one of the reasons why Biden's approval ratings are so low. Uh, are there signs of anybody in the United States uh, changing their spending behaviors uh, because of this inflation? Yes, yes, and yes. You're starting to see people pulling back. You're starting to see uh, prices. You're, you're basically got these for, the, these incredible forces in the economy at the moment. You've got the Fed starting to raise interest rates that will go much higher. You've got the government, the administration, clearly worried about inflation and having to put pressure through things like the SPR. You've got consumers not so much worried about jobs anymore, but they are worried about spending power. How high can it go? What, what purchases should I either make now or put off to the future? And you've got the prospect of stagflation. It's highly unlikely to have a recession, the United States, but this idea of weak, anemic growth at a time of inflation... These are the forces at a time when the U.S. is facing basically an economic war with Russia while supporting Ukraine in a real war. And Europe is facing even worse problems as it has to deal with the, the, uh, the refugee crisis. Let's make no bones about this, Jake. The situation economically is poor, getting worse with the prospect of a recession in parts of the world. All right, Richard Quest with that sobering news. Thank you so much. In our health lead today, a COVID outbreak has brought one of the busiest, most populated cities in the world to a grinding halt. Today, Shanghai is under a full city lockdown. The government there also apologizing for having been caught off guard after a surge in new cases set off panic. And now the city of 25 million looks like a ghost town. People forced to stay at home. CNN's Will Ripley's in the region in Taiwan. And Will, the Shanghai government admitting 
they were not fully prepared. Did they say how long this citywide lockdown might last? It's going to be at least a matter of days, Jake. And you're talking about, you mentioned 25 million people, more than the population of this island of Taiwan, where I am, which also has a zero COVID policy, by the way, and and an uptick in cases because Omicron is highly contagious and it's very difficult to keep COVID out forever. But in Shanghai, 5,600 cases, daily cases now, uh, are, are causing this lockdown, are shutting down a city, a vital cargo and transportation hub, uh, you know, hurting the economy, not just in Shanghai and in China, but perhaps even globally. And you have people with medical conditions like, like asthma uh, not being able to get to the hospital on time. In fact, there was a video shared on social media, an asthma patient uh, refused by an ambulance. That patient later died. So the hysteria about COVID, you know, most other countries, the United States, have far bigger case numbers, but life when you're there feels relatively normal. But certain countries and territories here in Asia, including Hong Kong, uh, which is dealing with its largest ever outbreak and a massive surge in cases and no herd immunity, by the way, because they kept COVID out and a lot of people felt they didn't need to get vaccinated. So when Omicron came in, the cases spread like wildfire, Jake. And what might this situation reveal about China's zero COVID strategy? Well, it's interesting because the Chinese president, Xi Jinping, is kind of trying to walk the line uh, to save face, saying, you know, the, the country has to be committed to zero COVID, but minimize the impact on the economy and on society. But but you can't minimize the impact when a small number of cases leads to a massive lockdown, even though they won't call it a lockdown because they're sending localized notices and locking down portions of the city at once. Life is disrupted. It's happening disrupted in Hong Kong as well uh, for for case numbers that would be considered small in most places that have accepted covid and encourage people to get vaccinated so that they can live their lives and not have to feel you know this hysteria and fear that grips a lot of these places with zero covid where people are just afraid of the unknown countries that have already allowed it in might say that, you know, life continues on for most people, Jake. All right. Well, Ripley, thank you so much. Also in that region today, new intelligence on North Korea, the activity happening underground that has the U.S. and allies watching closely with concern. Stay with us. Also in our world lead today, troubling new signs that North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un may have restarted his country's efforts to make a nuclear bomb. Let's go to CNN Pentagon correspondent Barbara Stark. Barbara, experts say they're seeing new activity at North Korea's nuclear testing site. That's right, Jake. U.S. and intelligence services in the region are seeing indications. U.S. officials telling us they see indications of construction activity, digging at the underground test site in the northern part of the country, where in the past North Korea has conducted underground nuclear tests. Now, their last test was in 2017. And you'll remember the next year in 2018, they invited the world press to watch them blow up the site as part of President Trump's now failed denuclearization initiative. It was never clear if the site was totally blown up, totally destroyed. But now all the indications are they are back at it and they want to restart that site and move towards testing underground nuclear devices again. It will be a huge step forward in their weapons program if they go ahead and do it, Jake. And Barbara, you're also hearing that North Korea may test another ballistic missile soon? Yeah, there there are also intelligence indications. These usually come, of course, from satellites overhead that see activity on the ground. That is very well known. Uh, indications are North Korea is moving towards another missile test in the coming weeks. Now, we had one from them that was seen several days ago. It was the largest, most powerful to date. 
largest uh, distance flown, most significant altitude, with a theoretical capability of striking the United States. So if they can put that kind of missile together with some kind of nuclear warhead, that is a red line for the world. They do not want North Korea to become a nuclear state. No indication that Kim Jong-un is the least bit interested in sitting down and talking about it all, Jake. All right, Barbara Starr, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, some of the youngest victims of Russia's war now in its sixth week. Newborns starting their lives in a new land. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, in a fight over parents' choice in school, same-sex couples now weighing in on how a new flaw in Florida could impact their children's daily lives. Plus, comedian Chris Rock breaking his silence about Will Smith physically assaulting him during the Oscars this week. What he actually said about the slap may not, may not be as telling as what he did not say. And breaking news leading this hour, Putin staying focused on southern Ukraine, not letting up on the constant shelling of cities such as Mariupol. Amid the bombardment, aid groups still trying to evacuate thousands of innocent Ukrainians stuck in that city. But one Ukrainian official says the buses to get innocent civilians out are being held up at a Russian checkpoint. Let's get right to CNN senior international correspondent Fred Pleitkin, who is in Kiev, Ukraine, for us. And Fred, you just visited Irpin. The mayor there says half of his city has been destroyed. What did you and your team see? Hi there, Jake. Well, I actually think that's probably underestimating the damage uh, that was caused in, in that fighting that took place. I mean, we wa- went through uh, that area with the uh, Ukrainian special police forces, and we barely saw any buildings that seemed untouched to us. There were a lot that had clearly had tank rounds or artillery shot straight through them, whole buildings that were uh, burned down. And, and this is, of course, a really important district where the Russians tried to enter Kiev from here. It's a suburb. You can see on our video that we're showing right now, there's some destroyed Russian military vehicles, some tanks. We saw a lot of those. And some of the residents that we spoke to said they, they think that the Russians didn't believe that there was going to be this kind of resistance uh, in that area. A lot of the residents there stood up. A lot of the residents there actually took up arms. Some of them fled, but some of them did take up arms and fight against the Russians. And they believe that's a big reason why they were able to turn things around uh, in that place. But widespread destruction. And I think, unfortunately, Jake, they are still going to be discovering a lot of dead bodies uh, in that place as they begin to search that area. The Russians were just barely pushed out of that area just a couple of days ago. So we're one of the first TV crews that came in. They are still bringing the bodies of people who died, not in the fighting, but mostly civilians, out of that area. It was uh, more than two dozen just today. So what we saw today was massive destruction and at the same time still obviously a very dangerous situation. Civilians not yet returning to that area, Jake. Frederick, is, is uh, fighting still happening in Irpin? Well, there is still a lot of fighting going on uh, in, in Irpin. I mean, one of the things that, that we had, one of the big issues that we had is that we uh, didn't even manage to get in just the normal day that you would get in. We had to take back routes. Uh, we had to take uh, vehicles. You see some of our, our, our driving there as we were going through uh, Irpin. And, and it, was, it was definitely a very difficult to get in because there is still so much fighting, because there is still so much shelling going on, and because obviously the Russians still might have operatives in there. It was quite interesting because we were at one destroyed tank that we were filming, and all of a sudden the European mayor showed up 
with uh, with the Ukrainian special forces. And he said that they were looking for possible Russian soldiers in civilian clothes who might still be in that area and obviously still pose a threat. It is still extremely dangerous. We saw plumes of smoke from artillery shells the entire time that we were there. So the Russians, while they've been pushed out of Irpin, are still shelling Irpin. And there's some who believe that that might be because uh, the Russians obviously might be covering some sort of withdrawal that they're conducting. But also they might just be conducting some sort of scorched earth policy. And Fred, a U.S. defense official says Russia is focusing its strikes on four areas. One of them is Kyiv. Since Russia announced its so-called drawdown, have you seen even more bombing? Well, it's interesting because the last couple of days we have actually seen uh, more shelling going on, especially uh, last night for for a very long time. There was a huge amount of uh, bombardment. And, you know, before we managed to get into uh, European today, we actually were were at the edge of European yesterday. And there was an unbelievable amount of shelling going on, unbelievable amount of noise that we were hearing. Uh, Today, it seemed that in European there was a little bit less. However, there were missile strikes here in central Kiev that obviously hit uh, targets. We're not exactly sure what they hit. So... Maybe there's a little bit less shelling, but it certainly doesn't look to us as though there's some sort of massive drawdown going on. And of course, you know, the the Ukrainians say that um, they don't believe that the Russians are withdrawing from this area. They certainly don't believe that the Russians would be withdrawing to create trust between themselves and the Ukrainians. They simply believe that the Russians lost the battle here for Kiev and are now having to regroup, possibly doing that in Belarus, Jake. All right, Fred Plotkin reporting live for us from the capital, Kiev. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. In the southern port city of Mariupol, quote, Russians were negotiating on everything except of people's lives. They do not care about people, unquote. That's according to the deputy prime minister of Ukraine today, as officials race to evacuate more than 100,000 Ukrainians stuck in that besieged city. CNN's Ed Lavendera is west of Mariupol in Odessa. And Ed, how are these evacuations going? Well, it is a volatile situation here tonight at this late hour, as we have heard from officials throughout the course of the day that there is a team of buses trying to make its way into the city to to evacuate at least 1,500 to 2,500 people. At least that was is the hope that they will be able to pull off here in the coming hours. But it doesn't appear that that has happened yet. In fact, a, a short while ago, uh, we had heard information uh, that that bus convoy was held at gunpoint by Russian forces. There are pleas uh, for to for the Russian forces to open up these humanitarian corridors so that people can escape that besieged city. And remember, this is going to take a great deal of time. There are still more than 100,000 people inside the city of Mariupol. The deputy mayor of that city told CNN today that people there are living like mice in shelters underground and in bomb shelters. A horrific situation and a desperate situation for tens of thousands of people, Jake. And Ed, you've been reporting on the city of Odessa bracing for Russian attacks. What did you have to see on the ground today? Well, you know, this has been a key or believed to be a key port uh, for uh, the the country of of Ukraine. Russian naval forces are just off the coast. Um, Some military officials here in the region have said that they believe that uh, the Russians are carrying out air reconnaissance. And when you walk around this city, there's a fortified zone around the center of the city that is completely shut down, void of life, basically. And that is an area overlooking uh, the the bay, the Odessa Bay, out to the Black Sea. But then when you go out into other parts of the city, at least during the day before the curfew goes into effect, in many ways, 
You see people trying to make the most of this situation, but there is an air of what's coming next. When you talk to people, they say they're trying to enjoy this peaceful time here in the city, uh, but they're obviously very concerned that that could change at any moment. Jake? Ed Lavendera reporting live for us from Odessa, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Joining us now, New York Democratic Congressman Gregory Meeks. He's the chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, Mr. Chairman, thanks for joining us. So we just heard in Ed's report Vladimir Putin does not seem to care about the human toll of this at all. Do you think the Biden administration could do more to help civilians in places like Mariupol? Well, I think that we're doing all that we can. I think that, you know, given the fact that there's no passageway uh, for individuals to cross through uh, to safety. You know, the Biden administration just announced another $800 million dollars. Uh, that is going to for humanitarian aid uh, as well as military aid to Ukraine. Uh, But the problem is when you have an individual like Putin who clearly does not care about women and children and people who are infirmed and continually bombs, you know, where he knows uh, where these individuals are trying to just survive. These are not military combatants. These are civilians. uh, And he continues to do it. And that's what makes it difficult and getting the aid into uh, the areas where these individuals are and or getting them out of the danger that they're in. So today you and your Republican counterpart, Congressman Mike McCall, uh, introduced legislation to try to hold Putin accountable for war crimes. Um, How exactly can you hold him accountable uh, from thousands of miles away? Well, the first thing that you have to do is to make sure that you're able to obtain and keep and preserve all of the evidence that you can. Uh, And so that's what we're doing. We're saying that, uh, you know, so we will never, ever forget the damage that he's done to Ukraine. But let's collect the evidence because once this is over, there is a trial. And when you have a trial, you have to present the evidence. And so what this bill says, uh, and as you said, we're doing it in a bipartisan way, is saying let's be uh, clear to preserve the evidence, whether some can be uh, evidence that we may obtain or get from the ground. Some could be what, how you're covering this and the pictures that you're depicting and showing uh, today. But we've got to make sure that you're building and we are building a case because he cannot, in my mind, get away with the crime to humanity that he's already caused. And it seems that there's no signs, despite what he has said, of him easing up. He's lied all the way through from the initial incursion into Ukraine to right now, saying that uh, trying to have some agreement, but yet, just as your reporters just reported, they are still bombing and killing innocent people. So the president of the Council on Foreign Relations, Richard Haas, has been critical uh, of individuals in the U.S. emphasizing uh, the the war crimes. Uh, He tweeted last week, quote, yes, Putin is a butcher and a war criminal, But not obvious how the president saying so, President uh, Biden saying so, serves our interests, as could well constrain and complicate diplomatic efforts to end the war, which is priority number one for now, as well as future need to deal with Putin on nuclear stability, Iran, North Korea, Syria, etc. So what do you make of Richard Haas's argument there? Well, I hear his argument and what we're saying, because there's no uh, uh, policy of the United States for regime change. And we're not talking about regime change. We are talking about what we see with our very own eyes. Uh, We cannot deny of what we are seeing is a crime and a genocide of Ukrainian people. We see that with our very own eyes every day. 
So there's no way for me or anyone reasonable to turn away and say it is not occurring. It is. And what this bill simply does is says let's preserve the evidence. Uh, and then there is due process that um, Putin will have. The decision of what the negotiations and how they should end, if there is one, is a, something that's determined by uh, President Zelensky and Ukrainian people, uh, not by us. We're not part of that, so I'm not saying that we should be. Uh, but I am saying that uh, the preservation of evidence, uh, the fact of the matter is, I'm not fooled what my eyes have shown me. I'm not fooled by the people that I've talked to when I visited Poland and met with Ukrainians, and we had some Ukrainian uh, a parliamentarian, some women parliamentarians who've come, came to the United States, who, who I met with with Speaker Pelosi yesterday. I'm not fooled, and you know, they're not lying to me. I've seen it and heard it with my own eyes, and so therefore, I must tell the American people and the rest of the world the truth, and I think that's what's going to keep us together. And you're also introducing new legislation which would regulate Russia's use of cryptocurrency, which they're using now to sidestep sanctions from the West. We, we know sanctions have not stopped Putin, so why would this work? Well, we want to authorize, using our oversight uh, authorities, authorize and create the Office of Director of Digital Currency so that we can make sure that we are watching and it's transparent so that Putin is not able to sidestep the sanctions. Uh, and so if we see anything of that nature, uh, look, We've got to make sure that these sanctions, as the president has indicated, will be crippling as they are. Sanctions, and there's no way for him to get around it. Uh, and, uh, and so this is just another mechanism that the Congress is utilizing as far as our oversight responsibilities to make sure that we are watching very carefully and trying to be very transparent about where and how Mr. Putin may be getting some dollars to try to continue his vicious war. And, Mr. Chairman, uh, sources are telling CNN that many Republicans, including uh, Ukrainian-born Congresswoman Victoria Sparks of, of Indiana, who we had on the show yesterday, many Republicans were frustrated at yesterday's classified briefing um, with the slow pace of U.S. weapon systems that have been, that are, you know, the Biden administration is trying to move into Ukraine. Uh, Biden officials were told that the briefing tried to reassure lawmakers, explain the lo logistical difficulties, which we all understand. They're in the middle of a war. This is not easy to do. But the U.S. has the most well-funded military in the world. Do you think the Biden administration is doing enough to get these systems into place to allow the Ukrainians to defend themselves? Look, I'm not going to disclose what was talked about in a uh, classified hearing. But I will say that you see the will of the Ukrainian people. And we see and hear every day how now they are even going on the offensive. And I will say to you that if the United States uh, and our allies were not working and getting the weapons in that they are getting in now, then we would not see the results that we're seeing. We'd not see that Russian tanks are being destroyed. We would not see that they're killing, you know, seven to 15,000 Russians already in just a month. How are they doing that? They're doing that because we are giving them what they need to defend themselves and finding ways to get additional pieces to them. And just in just a, a, a month's time, we've already spent close to a little bit over $2 billion. And we, there's mechanisms uh, that of getting it in that we should not talk about so that others don't need to know that. But it is clear the weapons that are causing them to win on the ground 
is because we are providing them the ammunition and the, and, and the military equipment that they need to do just that. Democratic Congressman of New York, Gregory Meeks, the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Thank you so much, sir. Appreciate your time. Good to be with you, Jake. Coming up, war does not stop babies from being born. We're going to visit some refugees who are becoming new mothers quite far away from home. Sticking with our world lead, more than 4 million Ukrainian refugees are scattered throughout Eastern Europe right now, most of them women and children. And for so many of those refugees, even war cannot stop certain parts of life from happening. CNN's Kyung Law spoke to women in Poland who brought the newest faces of war into the world in a strange country among strangers far, far away from home. Born just hours ago in Poland... Baby Adelina is already a survivor of the war in Ukraine. Is it, is it hard to be happy? It is, she says. Adelina is Kristina Pavluchenko's first child. You feel guilty? Why? Because I left, she says. Left her home in western Ukraine. The war had begun. The bombing neared their city. Pavluchenko escaped by bus, then walked on foot across the border. Paramedics rushed her to the hospital. She delivered Adelina a month early, separated from her family. Mama, sister. My mother, sister, grandparents, still in Ukraine. He's killing our people, she says of Vladimir Putin. How could anyone be so cruel? I'm terrified. I'm terrified that something like this can happen, that you can lead your everyday life and all of a sudden, because of decisions that you have no influence upon, uh, there is a war and you have to flee. It's, it's unbelievable. It's terrifying. Dr. Magda Duch is a psychiatrist at Inflanka Specialist Hospital in Warsaw. The hospital, focused on treating women, has seen 80 Ukrainian patients this month, delivered 11 babies, and treated cancer patients like 58-year-old Tatiana Mikhailuk. I ran with my granddaughter in my arms, she says. Missiles had already blown out the windows in their building. As they fled, something exploded next to their car. Her city is now occupied by Russians. She's grateful for her doctors at the hospital and the free health care in Poland that's treating her cervical cancer. Christina is one of the doctors. We're not using her last name because she herself is also a refugee from Ukraine, a mother of a five-year-old and the wife of a Ukrainian military man. Your husband. My husband has been in the military since 2014. At the moment, he's in Lviv. So you had to leave your husband behind. Yes, she says. Now in Warsaw, I can't sit and do nothing, she says. I have this opportunity here to help women who fled the country. With each breath... Baby Adelina offers her mother a respite from the war. What will you tell your daughter about her birth? The truth, she says. We will tell her everything as it was. She should know the truth. Now, all the women, the patients that you saw in this story, baby Adelina, all of this health care is covered by the government of Poland, including all the neonatal, all the post-care and they are not alone. The Ministry of Health here in Poland says that a total of 197 newborns born Ukrainian blood, but born in Poland, born since this war began. Jake? 
Kyung Law in Warsaw, Poland, thanks so much. Coming up, when politics gets personal, a look at some of the real-life fallout from the culture wars for same-sex couples and their children. In our national lead, the real-life fallout from what some call the culture wars is playing out across the country. Today, the very first lawsuit was filed aimed at blocking a law that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed on Monday. The Parental Rights in Education Law, that's what it's called, restricts classroom instruction on sexual orientation or gender identity in kindergarten through third grade. Critics call it the Don't Say Gay Law. You can notice the signs the children from families that support the law are holding. Here's a closer look. Uh, Protect children, support parents. CNN's Leila Santiago just sat down with some families with same-sex parents, and she filed this report. Oh my gosh, I haven't seen it in a long time. Like, oh wow, this is my marriage certificate. (laughs) That's right, I'm married. This piece of paper marks a moment in history. Todd and Jeff Delmay were among the first same-sex couples to marry in Florida when it became legal seven years ago. They had to fight for marriage equality and had to fight to adopt their son, Blake. There have been times in history when we have fought for a new right and fought for something. And there was a joy in expanding rights and access. And here we are fighting something where they're trying to take it away. The fight today, a new law in Florida, officially titled Parental Rights in Education, what critics call the Don't Say Gay Bill. The new law limits how schools can address sexuality and gender, particularly among the youngest students. The Del Mays now fear their son may not be able to talk about his two dads in the classroom. There's some anxiety about it. You know, Blake actually asked me, maybe even yesterday, you know, what does that mean? At the dinner table of the Conde Parlato home, they've been having many of the same conversations. I feel like it's, well, yeah, you can adopt these children, but like, keep your business at home. Don't come talking to us at school about like your families. Have you guys had that conversation as a family? Yeah. And what's that like? Kind of like, it's kind of like sad. Come for me and him. Uh, Don't come for my son. Don't make my son feel uncomfortable at school. It feels like someone is really just trying to, again, push you aside, push you uh, you back, slowly back into a closet, back into a corner, because of quote-unquote parental rights. We insist that parents have a right to be involved. Surrounded by supporters advocating parents' rights, Governor Ron DeSantis signed it into law at a Florida charter school on Monday. What struck you? That they were holding signs that say protecting children. It was strange to use children uh, in this bill because it harms other children. Um, and that's, that blows my mind. This fits a pattern of using children and people's fears about what might be done to their children when their children aren't in the safety of their homes is terrifying. They are using children as a prop to say that we need to stop something that in most cases isn't happening. But for one mom who spoke at the governor's press conference. We learned the middle school had created a transgender, gender non-conforming support plan with our 13-year-old daughter without our knowledge or consent. And while the governor's supporters consider this a win, LGBTQ advocates say it's not over yet and are now taking this to court. You had to fight to get married. You had to fight to adopt your son. You're fighting this now. You think you'll ever stop fighting? 
Well, I hope so. <laughs> I hope I hope so. I hope we get to a point where we we feel like we can stop. It doesn't look like in the foreseeable future that we have that luxury. And Jake, this is the lawsuit filed in court today. It's about 80 pages. Plaintiffs here, two LGBTQ advocacy groups, parents, students, as well as a teacher saying that their First and 14th Amendment rights violated as well as Title IX. And they say that this is an unlawful attempt to stigmatize and try to erase LGBTQ people in Florida public lawsuits. Florida oh. public schools, rather. This is uh, scheduled to begin, uh, take effect in July. Layla, how did uh, Governor DeSantis respond to this lawsuit today? He was asked about it during a press conference. He doubled down, says this is about empowering parents and making sure that they have more oversight over what their children learn in the classroom. And I want to read you a direct quote from the response to the lawsuit. When asked, he said, these are policy decisions. I don't think it's anything that's invoking First Amendment because schools, states and localities have the ability to set curriculum in public schools. We do that all the time. And that is not new. All right, Leila Santiago in Florida for us. Thank you so much. While the world condemns Putin's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, Donald Trump is asking that ruthless dictator for a favor. And now one Republican senator is joining the call. That's next. In our politics lead, red states are ground zero for America's culture wars right now. Florida's new LGBTQ law is just one in a slew of recent culture clash moves from Republican-led states. The ACLU says... More than 150 anti-LGBTQ bills, as they characterize it, have been introduced so far this year. Let's discuss with our analysts and contributors. Maria, let me start with you. In addition to Florida, uh, Iowa's governor just signed a law which limits uh, transgender youth from participating in girls' sports. Oklahoma lawmakers have advanced a bill that would ban a broad swath of, of books, including ones that discuss sex or sexual identity. Is this going to work? Is this a roadmap for Republicans to take back one or both houses of Congress in the midterms? Well, the states that you mentioned are pretty red states. And so I don't know that from the standpoint of politics, whether it Florida will... Florida Iowa didn't used to be. You're right about that. They didn't used to be. And I do think maybe if, if Democrats, and I hope that they do use this, in states like that where there are possible... And we all also know in red states there are seats that Democrats are, you know, are favored in or, you know, have right now and are focused on in the 2022 midterms. And I think that we can use this and we should use this to point out that these are problems. These these are answers in search of a problem. They are heartbreaking to the kids that these laws are geared toward because it singles them out. It marginalizes them. It marginalizes a group of kids that are, are already prone to being lonely, prone to thoughts of suicide, prone to feeling like they are not part of the bunch. And so to me, from the standpoint of in a lot of these laws, they're calling it the you know, child protection laws. It's ridiculous. And I think from a messaging standpoint, it is certainly not going to expand the GOP tent whatsoever. It will rile up their base. So if they have made the decision that that's what they need to do for the midterms, then I do think it will work. We need to counter it. So, Ramesh, uh, I should note, in Arizona, Governor Doug Ducey signed two bills uh, having to do with transgender youth yesterday. One would restrict access 
uh, to uh, healthcare treatments uh, for minors that that uh, such as ge- they call it gender affirming or right. hormones, et cetera. The other would prohibit trans athletes from competing on girls' sports teams. Utah Governor Cox, Spencer Cox, he's one of the few Republicans pushing back on any of this. Um, he vetoed a bill in his state, and he wrote, "Quote." Four kids and only one of them playing girls sports. That's what all of this is about. Rarely has so much fear and anger been directed at so few. I don't understand what they're going through or why they feel the way they do, but I want them to live. And ultimately, the Utah legislature overrode his veto. How do you see this? Well, I think that there are it it depends on the bill, right? Some of these bills, I think, are more defensible than others. I think, um, for example, the question of fairness in sports and protecting women's sports so that it's a fair competition and you don't have you don't have chromosomally male participants in female sports. That's something I think a lot of people who don't bear any ill will to people who are transgender or, or people who are of other sexual orientations. Um, that's something that makes sense to a lot of people. And I don't think that that is where Democrats are going to be able to take a really strong political stand against these bills. Now, some of these other bills, like the Florida one about classroom instruction, I think the vulnerability there was, could be a vulnerability in court as well as in public opinion is vagueness. So if you just say we don't want classroom instruction about sexual orientation right. uh, for people uh, before grade three, I think that also sounds reasonable. But the question then becomes, well, what's instruction? And exactly. does this mean that, you know, as, as you were talking about, can a, can a child not talk about their parents? That, I think, is going to be the place where the opposition should, can and should take a stand. So the, the vagueness of the law, I think, is, is, a, is an interesting yeah. issue because, look, nobody supports teachers, you know, preying on students or trying to recruit students to any particular uh, way of living, heterosexual or, or, or a homosexual, you know, K through three. That's nuts. Mm-hmm. But, you know, my, my daughter went to school with a kid who had two moms. Mm-hmm. Like, would that not be allowed to be discussed in a Florida classroom? Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm asking. Well, and I don't think we don't know the answer at this at this point. And that's the problem, because I think you, you may be talking about a problem that doesn't exist. It's just like critical race theory. Well, mm-hmm. how many schools were teaching critical race theory? Was that a problem that existed right. universally? When did it get invented? Uh, you know, is this about electioneering for 2022? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's just all part and parcel of the wedge issues, bringing out the base, as you mm-hmm. mentioned before. And I think that's that's a big part of it. And um, no doubt it'll work to a great degree, I think, with the base. The issue that I think a lot of uh, educators are having and the concern that they're having is the chilling effect, right? I mean, we've seen reports of librarians taking books off of shelves proactively, because they're afraid of the afraid of the ramifications about race, about anything that they think might make predominantly white parents, white heterosexual parents, feel uncomfortable. Uh, I can't imagine that when I was going through school, books not being available to mm-hmm. me on any wide range of right. subjects, even when I was in you know uh, elementary school or before entering college. So that's one thing that educators are facing is that they could be afraid to be willing to be open to a student to have these discussions or to even uh, suggest books for them to read that would have been uh, otherwise okay on critical race theory. You know, that's just become this catch-all phrase for the right in terms of any book about race or any conversation about race that makes, you know, Mostly their yeah. white base feel uncomfortable. So but there's, I, there's a popular concern that is not limited, I think, to the Republican base about parental influence in education. And it helps explain why you've seen things like the, the polling on education flip, which is this has been a Democratic advantage for a long time. To say nothing of the 
governor's mansion in Virginia. Yeah, right, right. right. And, it, right. and as Republicans have started talking about these issues, you know, it's not just been a wedge issue um, in the sense of mobilizing the base. It's been a wedge between Democratic politicians and people who used to vote for Democrats. But these, but these bills are not that. Mm-hmm. These bills, I think the problem for the Republican Party is that it, it goes to what Democrats can use, and frankly, independents as well, to continue to paint the party as intolerant as bigoted, as a a party that does not want to welcome people that are different than them. And I think from a messaging standpoint, that is something that Democrats need to focus on because, frankly, they are doing these kids huge harm. You're going to have kids that I believe are going to be in harm's way, perhaps even committing suicide because of what these bills are going to be doing to them. And by the way, I do give kudos to the governor of Utah and the governor of Indiana, who also said that he's going to veto it. There's also another story that's getting a lot of attention uh, here in Washington, having to do with the frustration within the Republican ranks mm-hmm. uh, with uh, uh, Congressman Madison Cawthorn of North Carolina. He made some comment about uh, the prevalence of, uh, <laughs> of cocaine and uh, orgies among uh, presumably Republicans in, in Washington, D.C., uh, the House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy finally found something to outrage him. Cawthorn, he says, has lost his trust. Uh, North Carolina Senator Tom Tillis says, uh, similarly, he might be backing a primary challenge. Um, what's, what's going on here? Why all of a sudden anger at this and not, you know, yeah. Marjorie Taylor Greene or well, whatever? Well, Senator Tillis did, in fact, today endorse. Oh, is that right? Today it happened? Challenger. Um, I... <laughs> It, it is, uh, I think, the kind of thing that some congressmen found. They were getting questions about, well, what's this about you guys all <laughs> Are you doing key bumps? Right. right. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and that, I guess, annoyed them. But it is um, sort of an amazing thing that this is fi- the final so, straw for Cawthorn, not calling you know, Zelensky you know why? a thug. Right. You know, or, right. This right. is about them. Yeah. yeah. That's why. Right. He, they were had, they're getting questions from their constituents. Do you participate in orgies and do... Cocaine, I, and, and they, they went into Kevin McCarthy, the minority yeah, leader, and said, oh, you've got to deal with this. But if Paul Gosar, in an animated cartoon, threatens the life right, of right. a Democratic right. congresswoman... Gosar literally yeah, attended a white nationalist convention. When, exactly. you to, when you talk to your sources on the Hill, how do they explain this very selective uh, outrage? First of all, I didn't know what a key bump was. Uh, it's, it's, it's apparently, I guess, uh, doing cocaine on a key. So <laughs> right. thank you to Congressman Cawthorn for educating me as to that. Uh, but, but what are people saying on the Hill? I mean, I think that well, what Democrats are saying is that it just shows uh, where the Republican Party is at right now, which is that uh, M- Kevin McCarthy is willing to be more forceful in his condemnation of, of Madison Cawthorn about this issue rather than about whether it's Marjorie Taylor Greene or Paul Gosar and them, you know, making anti-Semitic comments and making racist comments. So he's not willing to take action against them. In fact, saying that he's willing to give them back their committee posts uh, if he gains the majority, even though they have repeatedly made, you know, racist comments so, and been tied to yes. white nationalists. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks to one and all. Really appreciate it. Coming up, comedian Chris Rock talking about that slap at the Oscars. There is one person he's not talked to about it yet, though. Stay with us. In our pop culture lead today, Chris Rock speaking out for the first time since getting so publicly slapped by Will Smith for a joke Smith didn't like. The stand-up comedian performed two sold-out shows last night in Boston, walking on stage to huge cheers and applause and briefly addressing the shocking moment on everyone's mind. Listen to what Rock had to say. 
Let's discuss with Deadline senior editor Dominic Patton. Um, Dominic, good to see you. So Rock says he's still processing the moment, isn't ready to speak out in detail about what happened. He also implied during the show that he has not spoken with Will Smith since the incident. What was your reaction to it all? Well, I mean, the fact of the matter, he hasn't spoken to Will Smith. It doesn't look like he's spoken to the Academy, the people behind the Oscars as well. In many ways, Chris Rock is becoming the invisible man of this whole affair as things have really moved on to how the Academy is going to find a way to, as it says with its disciplinary proceedings, find a way to punish Will Smith for what happened on the 94th Academy Awards on Sunday. So the Academy released a statement saying that they they did ask Will Smith to leave the Oscars after he physically assaulted Rock, uh, but that he refused. But you have new reporting on this. Tell, Tell us. Yeah, I mean... Ask is one of those words like Bill Clinton would say. It depends on your definition of the word is. You know, it was supposedly was not asked directly. The head of the academy and the CEO asked one of his publicists who went over and spoke to him indirectly. We know producer at the same time, producer Will Packer also went over and spoke to him and said the opposite, which is kind of like, hey, man, everything's cool. Just hang out. We also forget this happened at 10 minutes after the actual violence happened, because after Will Smith hit Chris Rock and then yelled at him on stage, Chris Rock then presented the Academy Award for Best Documentary to Quest Love for the Amazing Summer of Soul, by the way. 10 minutes went by. These conversations happened during the commercials and a bureaucratic organization, clearly like the Academy, they just could not turn away from the iceberg that they were crashing into. And now this has turned into an almost bigger blast radius than the actual event itself. Well, it doesn't sound like the Academy told the truth when they said that he was asked to leave. I mean, if they just asked a PR person, who knows what the PR person said to Chris Rock? I mean, is that just a lie? Well, we do know that the PR person said to Chris Rock that there had been a suggestion or some indication you should leave. Chris Rock, uh, sorry, not to Chris Rock, to to Will Smith. Will Smith supposedly then said, no, you know what? I want to stay. I want to make this right. I want to apologize. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. And then there was the conversation with Will Packer. Also, remember, and many of us have seen the photos, Denzel Washington, uh, Tyler Perry, Bradley Cooper, and several others went over and spoke with Will Smith. And then he went back and sat in his seat for another 45 minutes until he was awarded the Best uh, Actor Award, for which he received a standing ovation and then gave a rather long, tearful, and I would say heartfelt, but somewhat conflicted speech. And conflict, I think, is the word here, Jake. The Academy has now given him until approximately next week, about the 14th of April, to respond in writing to them, to to their disciplinary proceedings. He could be be kicked out of the Academy. He could be suspended. He will not lose his Oscar because, honestly, there's no process for them to do that. And Roman Polanski still has his. But I will say is they're going to take some measures. They are going to get his response. And then on April 18th, they're going to have a meeting and, and work out what they're going to do. Let's be honest. You know this more than anyone, my friend. New cycle between here and April 18th. A lot of stuff's going to happen. Right. This is going to diminish and diminish. I think they're going to kick this down the can. Then they're going to kick this down the road. And then there's going to be something to happen. Will Smith will not show up at the, at the 95th Annual Academy Awards. But I think that he's going to do just okay. It all depends on how much he says sorry. Well, that's the thing. Are you surprised that at this point he hasn't done a tearful apology sitting next to Jada Pinkett Smith and talking to Oprah and, you know, talking about the 
his abusive father and how what he did was wrong and toxic masculinity and bad role models. Have you surprised that hasn't happened yet? Well, I, I'm surprised it hasn't happened, but I think there's a timeline. Tomorrow morning, we know that producer Will Packer is going on Good Morning America to offer his version of events. I mean, right, what's happening right now is, like they say, not always the crime, sometimes the cover-up. The blast radius of blame game is going around here. Who was responsible for what and who said what? Was the Academy technically telling the truth when they said they asked him to leave? Probably. But they didn't ask him. They did it in the Hollywood way, which is they asked through someone and someone else. I think you are going to see some sort of sit down with Will and Jada, and they're going to give their version of events. I think you're going to hear, as Chris Rock said at the beginning there, he's going to say something. But it's not going to happen fast, my friend, because everybody wants this to go away. The Hollywood way would have been just to not return his phone calls, I guess. Dominic Patton, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Good to see you. It is a lost and found tale involving Pink Floyd that was 17 years in the making. That story next. So, so you think you can tell one flamingo from another. Pink Floyd, the name of an African flamingo that escaped the Kansas Zoo back in 2005. Pink Floyd was spotted on the Texas coast this week. Now, normally flamingos in captivity have their wings clipped so as to prevent them from flying away. A fluke occurred in Pink Floyd's case. A windy day let him take flight before those critical feathers were taken from him. So Pink Floyd took the breeze south, and that's where he has apparently remained. Texas wildlife officials have confirmed it is the same bird, thanks to a leg band that is still attached. All in all, it's just another bird in the wild. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. Tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you know, you can listen to The Lead. Wherever you get your podcast, the two hours just sitting right there. Plus, do not forget to download our new streaming service, CNN Plus, so that you can watch, among other things, our book club interviews. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer. He is right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.